Hi, this is What's the Story. My name is Joe Painter here on ThePeopleChronicles.com. And with us in the studio on a very, very poignant story, Amelia Frank Vitale and Eduardo Garcia, who have been spent, uh, who have been spent, <laughs> spent a number of years. Is it fair to say this is maybe the last 10 years of, of your life working with migration issues anyway? For me, well... In Mexico, four years. Four years in Mexico. Ten years in migration issues, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And Eduardo? Well, for me, there have been like... Seven, actually, I never count how many years. I don't know, like six years working with migrants, but... like. So you're there. I mean, yeah. we, and I speak broadly when I say we, we read, we hear the story, but we didn't go there. And like you said earlier, Amelia, you knew about the fence, but boy, it was different when you were there Mm -hmm. at the fence or the wall or whatever you want to call it. Um, Back to that Guerreros del Camino. Mm -hmm. Did I get that better? Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. you. (laughs) In the second vignette, you talk about the march or the walk and, and you describe what they are doing, their walk, and then the march that we did. You talked about that. Does that make sense to you? And I, I assume that to meant the, the methodology that you employ when you, when you put this book together, their walk, and then the one that you did with them. I'm, I'm not sure of the distinction you're making. Um, so there was a... It was the second scene in three important things that you found in conjunction with the first one. So I just got the uh-huh. sense that you were looking at, mm-hmm. this is what we think, this is their walk, and then mm-hmm. you had an opportunity to walk with them. For example, when you did the Borderland documentary. I see what I'm you're saying. I'm going to take you there. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, um, so part of uh, what I talk about in my, my master's thesis is, is the, the protests of migrants. So migrants in Mexico are actually marching. That's actually a march that they're on um to protest the situation of kidnapping and extortion that they okay were in, were were dealing with had to deal with still have to deal with um and that was one of the first and there's been a series of them since then but one of the first moments of migrant collective action in Mexico to demand respect for for human rights so that yes we're migrants and that's okay we deserve respect absolutely you know, we right. shouldn't be treated any differently right. or abused in any manner right. because we're migrants right. you you were, were a consultant and you traveled uh, with um, Al Jazeera the international news outlet for a documentary called Borderland did you is it safe to say you made a journey with migrants during that process sort of um, what that program did was actually take people from the United States to retrace the steps of migrants who had died in the Arizona desert. I want to hear about that journey. So um, I was with, there were, there were three different groups, and I was with a group that had the case of a young boy named Omar Chile Lopez. He was 13 years old, and he was from a city in Guatemala, a town, really, in Guatemala. Um, and he left his town in hopes of reaching his mother and siblings who were already in the United States. So wait, 12-year-old boy, and he decides on his own he's going to try to get north. No, his mother sent for him. His, okay. mother, his mother had left a few years earlier, um, and she brought her children one by one, the eldest first, and then and Omar was the youngest, and he was the one who stayed behind. Um, and when he was 13, his mother sent for him. Okay. Too. Okay. Mm-hmm. How did his journey go? Well, 
um, not terribly well, considering he he was lost for a long time. Nobody knew what happened to him. Nobody nobody heard from him for for a year. Nobody knew anything. Um, but then his remains were found in the Arizona desert. So he made it across the border. Yeah. Well, he was on his way. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. what you were greeted with when you went to Arizona. That's when you realized the, the suffering and the death that was happening here in America in our desert. The, the Tucson, the Pima County morgue is full of unidentified remains. It is, it's really unbelievable but it is full of bodies. It is full of bones, of, of skeletons, of half-skeletons, of bones found in the desert of people who were trying to make their way here. People whose family in Central America or in Mexico or Ecuador or Brazil have no idea what happened to their loved ones. They can only guess that, they're de- that they've died somewhere. But there are, there are, there are skeletal remains of people just sitting in the morgue in Arizona. And, and the Pima County um, coroner uh, does everything he can to try and identify those remains. They're, they have a really wonderful operation, and they treat them with dignity and respect and really try to find out who they are. But the desert doesn't leave very many details. You can, you can die. You can go from being healthy to dead in 24 hours in the desert. It is so intense, the heat and the dryness there. You can die in 24 hours. And you can imagine what a month in that will do to a body. Let me ask you, if it's that harsh and you have to get through that desert to get here, do the migrant, did, did that 12-year-old boy know it was going to be that difficult? Yes, absolutely. What's going on? And I'm a mom. And <laughs> so... I'm thinking, what, what must my son be experiencing for me to say, make that journey? And I know there's fairly good chance you won't make it. W- what's happening? Why are people doing this? Well, in Omar's case, for example, he was from a, a small town um, in the mountains of Guatemala, near the Mexican border, actually, not too far from southern Mexico. Um, and the town's economy was pretty much based on coffee harvesting, um, which doesn't pay a lot. Mm. Working in the coffee fields does not pay very much. You can work, you can do back-breaking work all day long and come away with not really more than it costs to buy a soda. Oh, my. Yeah. Oh, my. So um, that means there's not a lot of money for for food, let alone shoes or clothes or school supplies um so people go north with the hopes in the case of this town in guatemala people go north with the hopes of being able to provide better for for their kids um omar's mom left with that in mind um and his aunt left with the same idea um the town is full of families that are that are transnational that half the families live in the united states and those who stay behind those who are still there in el porvenir they depend upon money sent back to for the basics, really for the basic necessities. Um, you know, when I spoke to Omar's aunt, um, when she left, she talked to her daughters about if she should go or not, that she didn't want to leave them, but if she went, she could afford to keep them in school, and if she didn't, she couldn't. So the aunt is coming here and leaving the children behind. Yeah, the aunt did the same thing as Omar's mother. 
Yeah. So is it survival or is it wanting a better life? How do you disaggregate the I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Do you know? I, I, okay, yeah. I asked that question. That's it. Um, thanks for shooting that right back at me. <laughs> I'm thinking survival is you're fearing for your life versus my life is just, you know, it's, it's a really poverty set of circumstance so I want a better life versus I fear for my life. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, but, I, but, I, but I maintain that I think they're really intertwined. Um, mm-hmm. So... In Omar's case, and uh, there are a lot of people like this, um, his life probably wasn't in danger in an immediate sense. But I think more and more that's the minority. Um, Central America has become one of the most violent regions in the world. Honduras is the, is the murder capital of the world. It is the most dangerous place. The most, it has the highest rate of homicide outside of a, of a war zone. Is that due to world. drugs or poverty or both? Or do you know? <laughs> I think um, I think poverty has has a part to play. I think inequality has a has a part to play. Um, drugs, drug trafficking has become um, part of what's happening in Honduras, but it's not really. It's it's not like the cartel violence that we know about in Mexico. Mm-hmm. It's not like that in Honduras. It's not like heavy heavily armed paramilitary like. Um, organized crime groups are battling a state army or police force. That's not what's going on. And it's not like the government is using those clashes to um, hide a lot of other murders either. It is um, the... I've heard people describe what's happening in Central America more akin to like um, like the kind of recruitment of child soldiers in Africa. Um, More like warring bands but that that suggests uh, a level of disorganization that I think is not really accurate either in Honduras at this point um, I think there's so little faith in the government or state institutions that the organized crime groups the maras is the term used in Central America um, are the authority in a lot of neighborhoods um, do we have time for a story about... I would like to go back to... I would okay. love a story about an individual <laughs> child. Take me in a child's journey. Okay. So um, this is sort of both about a child and not a child anymore. Um, in a shelter in northern Mexico a couple years ago, I met a young man um, who was from Honduras. He, when he was 16 years old, along with his cousin, the two of them fled Honduras together. Um, and he'd been living in Boston for 10 years. Um, he spoke really good English. He'd been here for a, a long time. But he was deported. He was caught one day just driving and was deported. Um, and he was sent back to Honduras, uh, to Tegucigalpa, the capital of Honduras, um, to a neighborhood called Flor del Campo, which is one of the very dangerous parts of Tegucigalpa. Um, sort of these, uh, from the center of Tegucigalpa, there are slums sort of going up the hills that are that were makeshift neighborhoods, you know, people who came to the city, built up these parts um, without any sort of official sanction. And so they're, they're steep and they're dense and they're very, very crowded and they're, they're very chaotic. Um, so he was deported back there and he stayed for just a few months but couldn't survive there. He felt completely incapable of surviving in Honduras 
So he tried again. And he was back on his way through. I met him on his second trip. But then I went to Tegucigalpa. And I visited his family. Um, and I learned more about his story. And so he left with his cousin when they were 16. Because the Maras, the gang that controlled his neighborhood, um, was forcibly recruiting them. Um, they were they were after them to join. They were 16-year-old boys. That's, that's who forms these Maras. Um, and they didn't want to. So at first they fled to uh, the outskirts of Tegucigalpa. They left to a place that's a little bit more rural, um, hoping that they would be able to be safe there. But the, the Maras followed them. And basically the, the choice was, we'll kill you or you join with us. And so the third option, the other option for both of those boys and many other children in Central America is to migrate, is to leave. So when I met, I met Haido's aunt, the, the mother of the cousin that he traveled with. And when I, when I met her, she hadn't seen her own son in 10 years. And she said, great. She said, it's better I don't see him because I know if he shows his face again here, he's dead. So wow. it's better that I can talk to him on the phone and know he's alive and know he's safe. Meanwhile, she had a, a young girl with her. Uh, the girl was, I don't know, five, five years old maybe. Um, and her father had just been murdered. Her father was a pizza delivery guy, so he had a little motorbike. And uh, the, the local gang wanted his motorbike, so they killed him and took it. Just, just a few days before I got there. And her daughter, so Jairo's other cousin... Her daughter was also there with me, and she had two. She has two twin boys, sons, who are young. They were, I think, they were probably nine years old now. Um, but she was terrified for her own children, and she and her husband were starting to think about what they were going to do, because at nine years old, the Mareros are already trying to recruit. They're already starting to pinpoint who the boys are in the neighborhood and who are going to be the next generation. And for her sons to be safe, she was already starting to think about sending them or all going together to join her brother and cousin in the United States. Even though her children are eight years old or nine years old, she was already starting to make that heartbreaking decision. And and did they? They're still deciding. Um, the young man I met made it back, and he's, he's in the United States again. Um, Illegally. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's no, still he risking. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't have papers. Um, but he'll do anything. He'll do anything to stay here. And what he does is he works. He, he told me he loved the New England winters. Who loves New England winters, <laughs> right? Because nobody wants to work in the snow, but that meant there was lots of work for him. Is that typical or atypical of the story of a migrant? I think that that family story is really typical. Um, transnational families where people send their children off. Uh, to save their children. There's a sense of, of sometimes bitterness from people in the United States that you just want this better life and you're not doing it right, um, and which begs the question, and since you study immigration and migration, um, how hard is it to do it right? There is no way. There is no visa available for a poor kid from Honduras to come to the United States. We'll be back with more on that and the rest of, the rest of what's the story here on thepeoplechronicles.com. How long?